For the week of Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we focus on state legislature races with a panel of experts. We speak with former State Representative Marcy Maxwell, political director for the Washington Senate Democratic Campaign, Alex Bond, and Code Blue Washington's Julia Ricketts, whose group is focused on advocating for Democratic candidates at the legislative level. We talk about why these races matter, what Democrats might be able to get accomplished with larger margins in both the House and the Senate in Olympia, and we shine a light on some key races for you to keep an eye on. We also check in this week with Stephen Wilhelm, research team leader for Indivisible Washington's 8th District, to talk about actions we can take here in Washington to push back against the Kavanaugh nomination and to help protect Rod Rosenstein and the Mueller investigation. That's all ahead, so stay with us. With the November election now just a month away and with so much of the focus nationally on Congress and the Senate, I thought we might take a moment here on the show to highlight and break down some of the crucial races that are happening here at the state level and moreover to talk about why these races matter. So to help us do that, we are first joined by Marcy Maxwell. Marcy served as state representative from the 41st District from 2009 to 2013. She also served as Governor Inslee's senior education policy advisor, and she is a friend of the show. Hello, Marcy. Hello, Stephen. Also with us is Alex Bond. He is the political director for the Washington Senate Democratic Campaign. Welcome to you, Alex. Hey, happy to be here. And we are also joined by Julia Ricketts. She is a Washington state captain for Code Blue, a national organization that emphasizes direct electoral activism. And here in Washington, it has put its focus on advocating for state-level races. And I should also mention that Julia was very instrumental in helping put this segment together. So hello to you, Julia. Hi, Stefan. Glad to be here. So, you know, you guys, I want to start by talking, uh, before we get into some of the particular races, I want to start by talking about the importance of legislative races generally. Uh, As I just mentioned, national-level races tend to get uh, more focus, maybe get voters a little more excited. But we really tend to be more impacted directly by what happens here at the state level. Uh, So, Marcy, I I want to start with you, since you are somebody who has actually served in the legislature. Talk a a little bit about the importance of state-level races. Well, certainly, Stefan, when we uh, look at elections, I would say that elections up and down the ballot and every single year, uh, you know, the federal elections, the state elections, and certainly the locals are all important to us, and we need to take every one of them seriously. Uh, the things that, uh, that the state is standing up for, certainly when we look at um, issues that we're concerned about at the federal level right now, we know that protecting our state and shaping the policies and budgets that uh, match our values are really key. And we do that by making sure that we have the legislators in in place that can move those uh, particular bills. And um, the majority does matter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into some of the reasons in just a moment why an extended Democratic majority could really be kind of a game changer. Um, Alex, you are the campaign director for the Washington State Senate Democrats, as I mentioned. So this is obviously very near and dear to you and your work. Talk about the importance of state legislative uh, races from, from your perspective. Well, I think the state legislature represents an opportunity to make sure that Washington is protected by some of the uh, attacks coming down at us from the federal level. You know, we're seeing under the Trump administration and the GOP Congress uh, all sorts of negative policies 
rolling back protections for the environment, rolling back consumer protections, uh, attacking health care. And the state legislature is an opportunity to ensure that the people of Washington are protected from as much of that as possible. And, you know, an example I'll bring up is net neutrality. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Republicans uh, rolled back net neutrality at the federal level, here in Washington State, we were able to pass a bill during last legislative session to ensure that net neutrality would stay in place in Washington State. And uh, I believe California may have just passed another bill, but for quite some time, we were the only state in the country with net neutrality in place because of the ability of Democrats in the Washington State legislature to pass that bill. And that's the kind of thing that we can do on issue after issue, make sure that Washington residents are protected as best as possible from what we're seeing coming down from the federal level. Yeah, it's what I like to call Trump-proofing the state. Uh, And so this would really give us a – having a a greater Democratic uh, majority would really give us an opportunity to do even more uh, in that direction. You know, I should also mention one of the things that uh, occurs to me when I think about the state legislature races, particularly as 2020 is looming, is that the census is coming up and state legislatures uh, determine districting for the states, which is uh, how Republicans manage to gerrymander districts in their favor after 2000. So uh, a lot, uh, a lot of important reasons here. Julia, I, I want to talk about your role here. Um, Code Blue is one of the few activist groups in the state that is specifically targeting legislative races. Talk about why you and your group decided to focus on legislative races here in Washington. Sure, Stefan. Um, I'd say really there were a couple of reasons. Um, one is we're a fairly small group with um, coming on about 600 members uh, statewide. And um, in terms of our potential impact as activists who want to take action to help Democrats win seats, um, really the smaller the race, the bigger the impact. So um, while we recognize the tremendous importance of our congressional races, um, for our kind of group size and function, um, working on state level races just made a lot of sense. Um, So when we evaluated our choices earlier this year, um, we really looked at state level races that overlap uh, key congressional districts as a way that our actions could sort of have like maximum impact. Yeah. And you're focusing uh, specifically, as I understand it, on on, uh, LDs that overlap the 8th congressional district, right? Yeah. The majority of our members are um, in and around the Seattle area. So the 8th is the you know obvious target that's the most accessible to us sure. and in terms of what we do you know it's it's pretty simple it's you know basically um, the type of field work that all campaigns need help with so our members get together and carpool uh, to canvas we phone bank we set up remote phone banking and you know we just kind of help the candidates um, any way we can well it's terrific I mean it, you, you talk about focusing on the, some of the smaller races uh, as being a little bit more cost effective. Um, It's kind of a page straight out of uh, the Tea Party's playbook. That's really kind of how they managed to to take over a lot of uh, state and local politics. So, um, you know, I want to go and talk just a little bit about uh, what can potentially be done with a larger margin in uh, 2019. It's, It's actually 
fairly tantalizing because if you consider what got done during the 60-day session this year with a one-vote margin, uh, there were policy reforms on voting rights, uh, reproductive rights, equal pay, conversion therapy, gun safety, net neutrality, as Alex mentioned, just to kind of bullet point a few. Um, And, you know, as I said, the Democrats have a real shot at creating a wider margin in both chambers in November. Uh, I'd love to talk about what else might be able to be accomplished in 2019 with a wider Democratic margin. Uh, Marcy, uh, any thoughts from you? Oh, gosh. You know, there's a number of progressive policies. We certainly saw last uh, legislative session that with the majority in both the House and the Senate, um, our uh, Democrats were able to lead some really great policies uh, to pass. And many of those in the end did pass bipartisan. It just takes the will and the leadership, you know, to, to make those uh, policies move forward. But, um, you know, certainly there are things around uh, gun safety. There are things around uh, uh, tax fairness. Um, there's there's just a, a number of um you know, possible uh, discussions, protecting women's uh, health issues. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's so many policies. The having the majority that's greater than one, because that's really what we have right now. We have, you know, a, a majority of one in the Senate, and we have a majority of two in the House. But if we if we lost even one, we'd have a tie in leadership, and uh, that's a struggle as it is. But having a majority greater than one, I think one of the the most important parts there is that you don't put any one um, senator or any one House representative uh, or even, you know, two or three of them uh, in a position where they can, uh, you know, totally control the the issues, the bills that are going to come to the floor in terms of Mm -hmm. something that that they are – committed to or something that is very concerning to them. Right. By being sort of a spoiler, do you mean? Or Yes. Yes. And I think the other the other piece of that is, too, is that, you know, when we have a a bit of a larger majority, we have um, the opportunity to look at our um, elected uh, legislators and and the districts that they represent. And, you know, there may be a particular issue, a particular bill that uh, doesn't sit well with a district um, or doesn't sit well with the particular, you know, the personal values of that legislator. And sometimes you need to let them go on that. So mm-hmm. having a, a larger majority really gives us uh, the opportunity to get some things done and to meet the needs of uh, each legislative district uh, mm-hmm. along the way. Well, Marcy, you obviously have, as I said, you, you, you've been there. You've, you've seen firsthand how the sausage is made and it's, uh, it's not pretty mm-hmm. and there, there are a lot of, you know, of compromises that, that have to happen along the way. But one of the things that I actually am fairly excited about, actually, scratch that, I'm enormously excited about, is the possibility of uh, Washington becoming the first state in the nation to have universal health care. I'm wondering if, uh, if any of you see that as, as being a realistic outcome of greater numbers uh, with, uh, among Democrats in uh, the House and Senate. Alex, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that that's something that a lot of our candidates have talked about this year. It's something that I think a lot of people recognize as uh, a potential need because, uh, you know, we're seeing that our healthcare system is so under threat at the federal level. We're seeing that how even under the ACA, uh, premiums are continuing to increase and, um, you know, something more needs to be done. I think the interesting challenge is 
is this something that Washington can do by itself, and how exactly does that take place? Right. You know, I think one of the big differences between the 60-day session that we had when we were in control last year and the potential for an 105, the 105-day session that we're going to have this year with the potential for a larger Democratic majority is, you know, last year in the 60-day session, we really only had time to do things that we had already worked out. And a lot of those issues you talked about, like reproductive rights and voting rights, um, those bills had been discussed for years, and they had never been able to pass under sure. the Republican Senate majority, but they had been pretty much worked out and agreed to. You know, everybody agreed pretty much this is what the voting, Washington Voting Rights Act should be. And so then when we had control, it was very easy to just say, okay, here's the bill, let's vote on it and get it through. So now the difference this year with the longer session with more members is we are going to have the time to talk about some of the new ideas that we just didn't have time to get through that in last year's session. Mm -hmm. And I think a universal health care uh, ideas, state single payer, I think that that's absolutely going to be on the table. You know, I've heard some of our candidates talking about maybe what we can form some kind of tri-state compact with uh, Washington and Oregon to sort of increase our markets and our purchasing power and that that might be a way to make it um, more feasible. You know, it's something that clearly there's a lot of homework that still needs to be done. But the difference between last year and this year is that in 105 days, we'll have time to do more of that homework, and we'll have time to explore the ideas and really dig in and figure out the way, you know, how do we make this work and make progress on this issue that we just didn't have time to do last year in just 60 days. Yeah. Marcy, I, I would just like to ask if you have anything to add to that, uh, just considering the political realities that you, you kind of laid out. Do you see uh, something like uh, single-payer health care, universal health care in the state as being uh, possible under a larger Democratic majority? You know, I certainly think that um, that that and uh, several other uh, large and important issues will be uh, on the docket. They will be in committee and, and reviewed, and uh, we may see some of them coming to the floor and, and passing. Um, I just uh, – when we did not have the majority in the Senate, for example, in recent years – some of those things were completely shut out. Some of those really important issues that affect the lives of people in every community were completely shut out from even a discussion in committee. So making the progress to get them to committee and uh, let the public have their say and move um, all or parts of the policy forward is uh, a real win and very important, again, to people in communities. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier about uh, the fact that uh, things that happen at the state and legislative level and, you know, it, these are the things that really impact us on a on a day-to-day basis far more mm-hmm. often than what happens at the national level. Okay, you guys, so I want to roll up our sleeves and kind of talk about some of the races here in this state that uh, people are watching. Um, primarily, I want to focus on races where Democrats can pick up seats. Uh, but there's one incumbent race, a Senate race that I'd like to mention in the 48th, Alex, and uh, the 48th includes parts of uh, Redmond, Bellevue, and Kirkland. This is where Democrat Petty Cooterer is being challenged by Democrat Rodney Tom. Uh, Alex, talk a little bit about the importance of this race. Um, first, and I just I want to point this out, this is a Democrat versus Democrat race. But even though Rodney Tom is technically a Democrat, when he was a state representative, he didn't caucus with the Democrats, right? 
Yeah, and it was in, um, he was, so Tom has quite a complicated <laughs> political history. Yeah. He was originally a Republican. He switched parties to become a Democrat um, back in 2006 when, you know, the political wave was coming that direction um, in response to the W. Bush administration. And then in, uh, at the end of 2012 and into 2013, he kind of changed parties again to join the Senate Republican caucus and put the Republicans in charge of the Senate. And that's sort of what got us started with this whole Senate Republican control thing that we had from 2013 through 2017. And so he's a very uh, conflicted guy in the sense of he's been on almost every side of every kind of political issue, you know, now <laughs> kind of blows Republican with the wind Democrat yeah. to Republican and then running this year as a Democrat. And I think, um, you know, it's important to note that, you know, in the primary, he did not do very well. Uh, Patty Cooter got over 60% of the vote. Tom was under 30%. And I think the reason why is because, you know, voters sense that kind of inauthenticity and that kind of mixed messaging. And, you know, Tom is a guy who kind of tries to have it both ways. He wants to go out and tell the Democrats that he's pro-choice, and he wants to go out and tell the Republicans that he hates, you know, big government spending. And, you know, it's, you know, voters don't get a lot of information on these legislative candidates. You know, it's folks are leading busy lives, and it's tough for them to pay attention to what's going on in these races. And when you try to be too cute with your messaging like that and have it both ways and say one thing to one group and a different thing to a different group, people are going to get that. They're going to sense when you have that mixed messaging and it's going to fall flat. And Patty Cooter, the entire campaign, her message is very simple. She's a Democrat. That's yeah. who she is. She thinks we need gun safety. She thinks, you know, we need to stand up for women's rights and the rights of, you know, immigrants and refugees. She thinks that we need to spend more money on better schools, you know, and it was very simple and very clear. And it resonated with folks in the district in a way that Tom's sort of dodging between sometimes he's a Democrat, sometimes he's a Republican. You know, what is he actually going to do if he gets to the Senate? It just people see through that stuff. And that's what we saw this year. And, you know, we're very glad that Patty did as well as she did in the primary. And um, it looks like we are on track to get her reelected this year. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's been much of a challenge to communicate uh, to voters that uh, Rodney Tom is uh, not uh, not really what he seems uh, in that regard. Um, you know, actually, just very briefly, Alex, uh, and, and then we'll move on to uh, some of the things that are happening in the House. But um, I think people would be curious to hear about Monica Dingra's campaign in the 45th as she was the game changer uh, this year. And she uh, has had to turn around and run again. Just very briefly, how is her campaign looking? You know, she's doing very well. I think the uh, Republicans learned their lesson a little bit uh, with her about messing with her. Um, you know, her opponent is not campaigning very much. He's a uh, kind of a local conservative kook. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's um, not a serious candidate. And so that means that, you know, Monka is in a position where she's able to, yeah. you know, work with some of, other, uh, some of our other candidates and help them out. And it looks like she should be doing uh, just fine this year, which is really good news. Well, wow, that's very good news. Okay, so let's shift over and talk about some uh, pickup opportunities that the Democrats have. Uh, there are a number of races in swing districts where Democrats have a, a real shot at flipping some seats. Um, Marcy, obviously, I want to 
bring you in on this. And uh, all 98 House seats are up in 2018, so we can't get to all of them. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about a few, I think, where the, the Democrats have some very interesting opportunities. And I would love for you to start by talking about the race in the 5th LD, um, which is my home turf. This includes Issaquah and parts of Snoqualmie and North Bend. Uh, the two Democrats in positions one and two, Bill Ramos and Lisa Cowan, came out ahead of their Republican opponents in the August primary. Uh, and these two seats have been held by Republicans for quite some time. Were you surprised by that result? Uh, it was uh, surprisingly wonderful. You know, uh, I'm not surprised because, first of all, our candidates are top-notch. You know, when you look at the uh, elected experience of Bill Ramos as a city council member and Lisa uh, Callen as a twice-elected uh, Issaquah school board director, uh, they have done great work in, with their public. And, uh, you know, on from there, uh, their, uh, their hard, hard work in this election campaign, along with a well-organized and strong uh, uh, precinct committee officer corps and volunteer base uh, in the 5th District has really uh, pulled them through. And, uh, you know, eight points over uh, one who's an incumbent and the other one who was an incumbent and, and is an open seat now, um, they certainly did the work to uh, bring them to those uh, primary wins. And I'm very excited about uh, about them in this election campaign. And I'm even more excited about them in Olympia because they are both so capable and uh, they will represent their districts very well. Well, let's also briefly discuss the race uh, between uh, Democrat Deborah Entenman, who is running against incumbent Mark Hargrove in the 47th, uh, and that includes most of Auburn. Uh, so talk a little bit about this race. I know Democrats would very much like to see Mark Hargrove replaced uh, because of his voting record on women's rights, LGBTQ issues. Um, he doesn't believe hate crimes exist. He's no friend of environment or labor. But uh, besides all that, Entenman is just a terrific <laughs> candidate, right? She is. Deborah, you know, I've, I've known and worked with Deborah for a number of years in her public policy work through uh, Congressman Smith's office. Uh, Deborah is a, a longtime resident of the 47th district. She raised her kids there, went to school there. Uh, she um, is around that district and well beyond in her uh, daily work. Uh, she um, is a woman of color. She is a trustee appointed by the governor at Renton Technical College. So she's been engaged. And I think the only uh, new thing for her is running her own campaign. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's doing a great job with that. She is well qualified, well versed on issues. And uh, she did a great job in uh, the primary against an incumbent who's uh, run a number of times and really hasn't had a challenge before. You know, he's had fairly weak candidates before. So uh, we're uh, certainly supporting her with Win With Women and a number of organizations. And uh, she's she's earned that support and uh, we're working for a win. I do want to talk about Win With Women in, in just a moment because that's a, a, mm -hmm. a pack of yours, uh, which I think mm -hmm. is doing some extraordinary work. But Marcy, before we uh, move on, I'd like for you to touch on the Matt Manweller, Sylvia Hammond race in the 13th. Uh, Matt Manweller is the incumbent. Um, he has been fired by Central Washington University for inappropriate sexual behavior. He has been pressured to resign as representative, but he has said that he will remain in the race. And if he wins, he'll step down then. Give us your thoughts generally on this race. So here we have an incumbent who has been stripped of his uh, leadership positions in the House because 
of his firing and investigations uh, on uh, sexual harassment. And um, he is running. He had a 63% in the uh, primary. And I know Sylvia is working very hard. And uh, she is well respected in that district. Um, I think a lot of folks are giving her a second look. And I think that uh, when you have two uh, candidates like that, certainly you ought to pick the winner that you know is going to serve versus somebody who says he's going to step away mm -hmm. if he won the race. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, Republicans would get to appoint his um, replacement. So yeah, voters really aren't even getting to choose what's on the shelf here. They're having to, you know, uh, decide if they're going to support really a non-candidate. So that's a pretty bizarre scenario. Well, Julia, since you have uh, brought that up, I I'm curious to know if there are any other House races that your group is particularly excited about or, or focusing on. Yeah, we do have a couple of um, House candidates that um, our group is doing a lot of work for. We we are working on um, Ramos and Callan races, which has been um, really great, and everyone's super um, energized for them. Um, I'd also like to just point out um, the race of uh, Kay Morano in LD6. She's not one of our um, adopted candidates at this time, but we are um, working on another race in that district. And, you know, in terms of a house race, that was a bit of a surprise, I think. Um, Kay Morano is a She's a works for a nonprofit uh, working with housing issues. And, you know, she's a new candidate. Um, I believe she's an Emerge Washington graduate. So she, you know, this is her first time stepping into politics. And she came within a half a point of the incumbent in that race. And so that's a pretty exciting opportunity. Um, LD6, that's over outside of um, uh, Spokane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's one that I would highlight. Um, there's also a couple of house races uh, down in Southwest Washington. Uh, Tanisha Harris and Erin Frazier are both looking really strong. Um, you know, our group doesn't have a lot of membership down there, so we haven't been able to participate in a kind of boots on the ground way. But um, if anyone's just looking for, you know, some savvy investments uh, in the future, <laughs> I would say uh, Tanisha Harris, uh, terrific candidate, woman of color, uh, running in LD17. And then Erin Frazier, um, that district, you know, is one that unexpectedly, you know, I don't know unexpectedly, but uh, flipped for Trump after going for, you know, Obama in both 2012 and 2016. So um, that was pretty devastating, I think, to Democrats down there to um, have, you know, a really traditionally strong blue district, um, you know, flip and go for Trump. And, you know, Aaron Frazier, I think, is a candidate at the state level who can, you know, turn that district blue again. So she's um, a really good match for down there. Well, you know, uh, speaking of districts uh, flipping, there are a couple of interesting things that are happening uh, on the Senate side, Alex, uh, that I want to talk about. And these are two close races around Puget Sound. Uh, the first is in the 30th, which includes Federal Way. Um, and that is where Democrat Claire Wilson is running against incumbent Mark Molosha. Um, this race is attracting a lot of outside money. It's it's apparently on track to be more expensive than the Moncadingra special election last year, which uh, was at itself the most expensive in state history. Um, 
Um, first, tell us a little bit about this race, and more importantly, where is the money coming from? It's mostly outside money, yes? Yeah, and, you know, the, the money that's coming into state Senate races and state House races as well, you know, every year we think this is as bad as it could get. It's getting absurd. And then, you know, two <laughs> years later, it's even worse. So uh, it really is unhealthy for our democracy, especially how much of the money is going through independent expenditures that are outside of the candidate's control. It's really wild. But uh, this is the world we live in, I guess, yeah. um, until we get to do something about Citizens United. But um uh, you know, in the 30th, in Federal Way, I think a big part of why it's drawing so much attention is because the Federal Way is such a political bellwether for the state. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a rule of thumb that if you're running statewide, whichever candidate wins Federal Way will probably win the state. So it's sort of and like the so, Ohio, then, of the state. as they, as they Yeah, get. and, and I, I think both sides recognize that. And that's part of why Federal Way has sort of ebbed and flowed between red and blue over the past couple of years. You know, for a while, actually for a year, both House seats, all three seats, in fact, both House seats and the, and the Senate seat were all red. And then last, uh, two years ago in 2016, uh, the House was able to take back both those House seats, flip them from red to blue. Now, and the Senate seat wasn't up that cycle. This year, the Senate seat is up. And this is op- our opportunity to take that bellwether district that was three red. Then we flipped it to two blue, one red, and this is our chance to make it all three blue, which I think would be a big statement about how folks in that suburban crescent that decide so many of our statewide races and issues are feeling about uh, about things. And so, um, you know, both sides, I think, recognize the critical importance of this race in this district. And, you know, Mark Melosha is a longtime incumbent. He's another one of those guys who like Rodney Tom, is a little confused about his party. He served as a Democrat for several years in the House and then switched as a Republican to run for the Senate in 2014. Um, sort of following that political bellwether, he saw 2014 was a good year for Republicans, and he knew which side his bread was buttered on, and so he flipped over to them. Um, we've got a great candidate, Claire Wilson. She's president of the Federal Way School Board. And, you know, they are both, you know, I have to, you know, they're working their tails off for that race, and it's going to get a lot of attention and a lot of, Uh, a lot of that outside money pouring in. And, you know, I think the one thing we've got going for us is, you know, this is a, this is a pretty diverse district. It's got a lot of communities of color. It's got a lot of families who have moved out of Seattle because they couldn't afford to live in Seattle anymore with housing costs going up. And so a lot of people who are really feeling the pressure of costs going up and, uh, and their frustration with that. And I think we can tell a good story about, you know, our commitment to expanding housing to making healthcare more affordable, uh, to making sure that people can afford to live in the communities where they work and that kind of stuff. And I think that that's going to appeal to folks, and especially with Claire's experience in, educa- uh, in education. Uh, she's got a strong resume. She's got a strong story for the voters, and she's committed to winning this campaign. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be a prize fight, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that one shakes out. Absolutely, especially considering uh, the the fact that that district, as you say, is a bellwether. And if the Democrats were able to take all three uh, seats, though, that would be extraordinary. You know, just very briefly, I want to talk about the race in the 26th, and that includes Gig Harbor and Port Orchard. Um, and this is an open seat race where Democrat Emily Randall uh, is running against Marty McClendon, uh, and she actually beat him in the primary of uh, 49 to 46. The, the 26th has been a very reliable Republican district, and I know that the GOP really wants to hang on to this district. Um, how do you see Randall's chances in November, very briefly? So I think that this is a really interesting race because this is an incredibly tough district. Like you said, this is a district that 
by and large votes Republican. And what is really making this possible is because Emily Randall is one of the most exceptional candidates I've seen. Uh, I've been working in state legislative elections here in Washington State for a long time, and she is really a special lady. And she is out there working hard, so incredibly hard. She's knocking on doors all the time. She's raising the money. She is doing everything right. And I think that her incredible personal efforts are putting this district on the map in a way that um, any, any, anything less than her giving 100% would make this so much harder. But because th this is one where the mismatch in the candidates, I think it's going to be the decisive factor because we've got Emily, who has an incredible personal story about uh, how healthcare affected her family. You know, her uh, younger sister grew up with very severe disabilities, and they were only able to keep things going because of uh, services like Medicaid expansion that made it possible for them to, uh, you know, raise her sister. And uh, she's, so she's seeing firsthand how those services are critical to families. She's got a great story to tell around it. She's working hard to get it out there. And the Republican candidate, Marty McClendon, he's sort of a perennial candidate kind of guy. He's run for office repeatedly, lost every time. And he is a really extreme conservative with some really ugly views about uh, immigrants, communities of color. Uh, he's really kind of a Trump kind of guy in that regard. Mm. And the mismatch in candidates that we have is making it possible for us to compete and I hope win in what is a tough district for us, honestly. Well, as they say, candidates really do matter. And uh, Emily Randall actually told her story on this uh, this program. So I will uh, post a link to that up on indivisiblepodcast.org for people who would like to go back and listen to her interview there. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that we were going to talk about this uh, later um uh, Marcy, that your pack win with women. I think it's striking that uh, every single Democratic candidate, and this was not by design, but every single Democratic candidate, with the exception of Bill Ramos, that we've talked about on the show today, has been uh, has been female. Uh, talk about that, and then talk about a little bit of uh, what win with women does. So, uh, win with women formed uh, early in this decade. Uh, after what we experienced, which was uh, a legislature, a state legislature that was about 40% women uh, from about 1998 to 2002. Um, in 2012, we were at 30% women. And um, we saw that, you know, what we needed to do was make sure that women had the support that they needed to say yes to running for election, the mentors and the support to say yes, and uh, the initial uh, help to raise some funds in their primary elections and their general elections. So a group of uh, leaders, uh, leading women around the state got together and we, we formed some principles that we ask our candidates to take a look at. And um, we are supporting uh, democratic women run for election. We have a number of elections. I think we have at least 37 women that we prioritized this, this year. We have more That's that terrific. are on our endorsement list, but 37 that we prioritized. And we have provided them uh, with funding that we've worked hard to raise uh, in both uh, the primary and uh, the general election, and we're continuing to do so uh, until uh, election day. Um, you know, the voice of women in the legislature especially progressive women, is so important in policies and funding in so, so many areas. And again, if we look at last year's uh, uh, legislative session, we saw 
many of the you know key policies that were driven by women. Uh, we, you know, family leave and uh, you know, gender e equal pay, and you know, so many issues in um, every committee and every uh, area of work that they have. So um, we not only provide them with some money, but we also do uh, some mentoring and networking for them and want to make sure that they have every opportunity to run a good race, uh, whether it's a district that is um, you know, easier, uh, you know, say in, in Seattle, or whether it's a district where it's been a real challenge. And we are seeing the results and um, you know, we're right there to partner with them. So, well, Marcy, you you do such incredible work. You're such a uh, you're a political force for good in this state, and we're <laughs> grateful is, for this you. This is not this is not me. This is a, there's a, there's a, about 15 of us together. So, thank you for the kudos, but I thank you for my partners in Win with Women because uh, they make a huge difference, and they're not afraid to ask for funds and and uh, you know be a part of campaigns and uh, help them win. Understood. Yeah. And, one thing I'd very like uh, I'd like to very briefly add to Marcy's point was um, there's never been an open lesbian woman in the state senate. Uh, there's been several gay men. There's been open lesbian women in the house, but we've never had one in the senate. Uh, the two uh, women that we talked about here on the senate side, Claire and Emily, both of them identify as LGBTQ, and uh, that would be a chance to. Uh, break that barrier, have something historic happen and with either one, hopefully both of those races. That would be really cool to see. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I think there's a lot of history that can be made around this race, and that was the reason why I was moved to do this segment. So uh, we'll close it out here with you, uh, Julia. Um, these races, of course, all require people power, volunteers, uh, and uh, I know that uh, obviously Indivisible and the Washington Democrats are connecting with, uh, connecting people with volunteer opportunities, and I will absolutely make sure that we have some links available for people there. Uh, but Julie, just talk about how people can get involved with Code Blue if they uh, if they like what you uh, have been talking about here on the show. Yeah, great. Thanks, Stefan. Um, we, uh, we do operate primarily out of a Facebook space, so you can look for our page, uh, Code Blue Washington, and request to join. Um, we also have an email list, which is wacodeblue at gmail.com. And, you know, we just kind of uh, compile um, opportunities for our members. Um, we try to sort of keep it very curated so that it's not an overwhelming number of choices. Um, you know, we pick one or two canvases every single weekend and we try to kind of consolidate energy into those um, so that we can put together carpools usually from north central and south seattle um, so you know we're just trying to get out there and and do the work um, there's also um, plenty of space to do things from home and like i said uh, phone banking is an ongoing need um, so you will find those resources when you hook into our group so that you can you know, just have a friend over, um, make some tea and, you know, start dialing some voters. <laughs> I believe when we were talking before we uh, did this segment, you had mentioned wine as well. So, you know, you yeah. mix it up, whatever you want. Uh, but... Yeah, very um, uh, diplomatically, I switched that. To, yeah, you know, whatever works for you. Exactly. Um, well, Julia, I, I should just say a thank you for your work on this segment. Thank you for the work that you're doing with Code Blue. And this has just been a tremendous discussion. All of you, uh, Marcy Maxwell, Alex Bond, Julia Ricketts, thank you to you all. Thank you, Thank you. And last this week, we check in with Stephen Wilhelm, research team leader with Indivisible Washington's 8th District. Hey, Stephen. 
Hey, Stefan, how are you? I'm good. Um, so, look, I think the question that's on the mind of most people listening is uh, after last week witnessing the, the very painful testimony of Dr. Christine Blasey Ford and then having to endure the subsequent uh, performance from Brett Kavanaugh, uh, people were wondering what we can do to push back in any substantial way, uh, particularly here in Washington. And there are a couple of ways. And we've talked about them on the show, but I guess just in light of everything that happened last week, I feel like it's a good idea for us to just repeat them. So let's start uh, with the two phone banks, the Nayral phone bank and the one from Indivisible. Tell us about each of them. Yeah, they're both um, pretty good, and they've got a slightly different um, uh, flavor to each one. But the idea for both is, uh, you know, again, it always makes sense for constituents to call their own senators. So since we've got senators that are on board, here's a couple of phone banks that'll give folks an opportunity to get um, senators hopefully uh, persuaded in in, uh, key states. For the NARAL phone bank, they are focused on trying to persuade uh, those senators who have not made up their mind yet. So um, the uh, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, um, Heidi Heitkamp, uh, Jeff Flank, Flake. So if you uh, dial into the NARAL phone bank, you can, that, that's an impact that you could potentially have before the Senate votes, um, this, presumably this Friday. Yeah. The other phone bank that, that will have an impact, um, but, but on a little bit longer term basis is the indivisible phone bank. And what, what they're doing there is, um, calling senators, um, uh, constituents to call their senators in, in potentially flippable states, meaning Arizona, again, Arizona, but also Nevada, Tennessee, Texas, and Mississippi, and letting them know that uh, if you vote um, the way we expect you're going to vote in, in this uh, upcoming uh, judicial confirmation, we're definitely going to be coming after you in November. So two different flavors, one one definitely before Friday and the other one a little bit longer term, but both of them taking place this week. Yeah, you know, I actually, since you uh, sort of bring up the time uh, stamp here, I should mention that we are recording on Wednesday, October 3rd. There has been no word from the FBI about the conclusion of their investigation, but the expectation is that that could come at any moment, um, even as Rachel Maddow likes to say, while well, we're recording. So, uh, you know, we'll keep uh, kind of an eye on that. Um, you know, you mentioned that both of our senators are on board. They have committed to voting no against Kavanaugh, but there is a little bit more that we can do in calling our two senators with an ask. So talk about that. You bet. Um, certainly what's what's not happening or what doesn't seem to be happening right now is uh, it, it does seem that the FBI is being constrained. Um, and so what we would ask, what we should do is call our senators and ask them for um, two things. We would like them to um, lobby the, uh, the White House to have the FBI investigate or, or contact uh, any witnesses that they think would have meaning. There have been several witnesses who claim um, that they've got information, but they haven't been in touch with the FBI yet. Mm-hmm. And also, um, we should ask the judiciary to subpoena those witnesses and, and, and come in front of the committee and, and be heard uh, before the judges, uh, sorry, before the senators vote on Judge Kavanaugh's nomination. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. So uh, one last thing. Uh, so since we last spoke, uh, a story broke in The New York Times that asserted that uh, Deputy, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein had talked, uh, some it's a joked, about his wearing a wire to try to build a case for using the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. Uh, this, of course, is the amendment that calls for the replacement of an executive if he's deemed incapacitated or unfit. Um, since then, there has been speculation that Trump might fire Rosenstein. There was a uh, rather tense meeting. Uh, so talk about the call to protect Rosenstein and then subsequently the uh, Mueller investigation. Yeah, absolutely. So the it doesn't appear to me that Donald Trump knows how to govern, but he really knows how to be a reality TV star. Mm-hmm. And, and he keeps having this slow reveal on, on when he's going to um, have a sit down with Attorney General uh, Rosenstein. Um, you know, originally it was going to be last week at the same time as the Kavanaugh hearing, and then it was going to be um, sometime this week. And then I think I was reading something yesterday that now uh, the president has delayed that conversation until um, after the Senate votes on uh, the Kavanaugh nomination. So great. That gives us a little bit more time yeah. to call both of our senators and our representatives and ask them to do everything they can to prevent uh, President Trump either from firing the special counsel or the deputy attorney general. And in fact, there's even um, some legislation that we can ask them uh, to co-sponsor for the Senate. Um, That would be uh, Senate Bill 2644. And for our representatives, that would be uh, the House Bill 5476. But um, however folks are moved, they should definitely call both senators um, and their representative. And remember, the House is on recess, so go ahead and call your representative at their local Washington office yeah. and um, ask them to protect um, protect the, the special counsel and protect the deputy attorney general from any uh, nefarious firings or, or any interference from the president. Yeah, yeah. Our reality, our reality star president likes to keep us in suspense. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, that is uh, Senate Bill twenty six forty four and House Bill fifty four seventy six, and I'll have that information up as always at indivisiblepodcast.org. dot org. But Stephen, as always, thank you for filling us in, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Stephen. Now, before we go, uh, I want to say a huge congratulations to our amazing Democratic congressional candidates in Districts 3, 5, and 8, Carolyn Long, Lisa Brown, and Kim Schreier, respectively, for each officially receiving an endorsement from none other than President Barack Obama. Awesomeness. Oh, and one other item. Uh, A while back, I interviewed filmmaker Derek Armstrong McNeil about his incredible documentary about homelessness in Seattle called The Road to Nicholsville. And I said I'd ping you guys when it was available in wide release. Well, that time is now. The Road to Nicholsville is available for order and streaming on Amazon Video, so you can check that out, and I will have a link for you, and I'll also be rerunning our interview on Friday. So that will do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thanks again to my guests, Marcy Maxwell, Alex Bond, and Julia Ricketts. Thank you, Stephen Wilhelm. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>